This is Series 3 of Brave New Girl Podcast, and I'm Lou Hamilton, author and illustrator of Brave New Girl, How to Be Fearless, and I welcome you to the stories of real-life Brave New Girls who are creatives, founders, campaigners, health practitioners, and thought leaders who are making a positive impact in the world. This week's guest is Dr. Sabina Brennan, a neuroscientist, psychologist, and author of Beating Brain Fog, which guides us through the science of how our brains work, why we might experience confusion and anxiety, and what we can do to look after our brain health as much as we look after our dental health. Because to work and live well, we need our brains to be functioning well. Welcome, Sabina, to Brave New Girl Podcast. Hi, Sabina. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. I'm good. Nice sunny morning this morning. Oh, I know. It's so lovely, isn't it? Uh, long may these spring to summer days last. Oh, it makes such a difference, doesn't it? A blue mm. sky. It's like I always feel when the sky is grey, um, it's like being in a low ceilinged house. I kind of get claustrophobic. I like light and space. Yeah. And I think the dark grey skies do that, but the blue skies just lift you. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've been through the pandemic this last year, but People are saying that they found the last lockdown the hardest because, and I, I wonder whether that is because it was through the winter months. So, people that you've you're not been actually seeing people face to face through this time, but you've been talking to people. So, what have you found have been the sort of main symptoms? I mean, has there been a rise in, you know, brain fog? depression, anxiety, migraines. Yeah, absolutely. Drinking. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, gosh, all of the above, really, in a sense. Um, rather interestingly, I obviously wrote a book about brain fog long before COVID-19 even existed, even though it was published, you know, only just now. You know, when you write a book, it's, uh, you know, a long process. Um, and, uh, you know, people who were affected by brain fog, uh, you know, it was a, a, a quite a large number of people, mainly women, you know, with autoimmune diseases and inflammatory conditions or um, hormonal changes, etc. Um, but now since the pandemic and nobody really talked about it, that's part of what I was kind of why I wrote the book, you know, because um, people were struggling, didn't know what it was. And now suddenly it's sort of everywhere, you know, um, and if I can say that the pandemic has any sort of silver lining, it's that it's shone a spotlight on brain fog, uh, which uh, really is something that can be extremely debilitating um, and very hard to define. And that's part of the reason, you know, really that I wrote the book was to break it down into brain function and what's being affected. But yes, there has been a huge rise in, in sort of two cohorts in a way, people who have had COVID, a lot of people with long COVID, the persistent symptom is, uh, you know, fatigue, which mainly is manifesting as a mental fatigue and brain fog. Um, and a lot of people haven't been able to go back to work because of it. Um, and even struggle to carry out just their day-to-day -day activity, like, you know, not being able to to cook the dinner or, or make a decision about what to wear, like, or, or hold a conversation or even read books. And some people have even said to me they can't even follow the plot of a film on television, you know, their concentration is so poor. But then on top of that, because of lockdown measures and the stress that we've been living under, the underlying causes of brain fog, everybody's be, been experiencing that, you know, and people have said things like, I'm actually doing less now. Now, these people obviously don't have children to homeschool, but, <laughs> you know, I'm not traveling for work. I'm not entertaining at home. I'm not going out to see friends. 
Um, I'm just sitting at my computer doing my job and I am exhausted and I can't think straight and I'm less productive. And that's classic brain fog. And actually, it's because they're not doing some of those other things. They're not having healthy stress in their life. It's all the unhealthy chronic stress. Um, and chronic stress really does cause brain fog. But also a lot of people are talking about having trouble sleeping. And if they are sleeping, it's disrupted sleeping. And if you have poor disrupted or poor quality sleep, that will give rise to brain fog also. Um, and then on top of that, and uh, probably one of the biggest reasons I think people are experiencing brain fog, is that pre-pandemic, you know, the estimate is that we spend about 40, 40 about 40% 40 of our behaviours are habitual. So if you think back, back pre-pandemic, you know, you get up in the morning, you know, Monday morning, you, you know, bleary-eyed into the bathroom, have a pee, maybe have your shower, brush your teeth, get dressed, breakfast. You know, actually, you could be up till 10 o'clock before you're really thinking about having to do something. You know, you go into the office, you pick up your coffee cup, you say hello to so-and-so, you know, you have all your little routines. And they are all habitual. And the reason those habits are um, critical to brain function um, is that your thinking part of the brain, the crinkly part on the outside, that is very resource heavy. So to do anything with that part of your brain uses up a huge amount of energy and available resources. And it has a limited amount of resources. So what your brain constantly does, it scans for patterns in your behavior. So getting up, walking to the bathroom, peeing, showering, <laughs> washing your hair. You know, if you're doing those regularly every day, that's a pattern. And the brain literally goes, that's a pattern I can automate. And what it does is it, it transfers responsibility for that behavior to a part of your brain called the basal ganglia, which is in the limbic or emotional brain, which is unconscious, unthinking, and it is far less uh, effortful. You know, it uses less resource resources. And by definition, it's effortless. You know, we don't have to think about those things. And so the brain then is free to think about the more complex activities around, you know, whatever your job is, if you're writing a paragraph or, you know, whatever it is you do for your day job or even just deciding what to have for dinner. So a year ago, everybody was just told to go home, <laughs> figure out how to work from home and to work from home. And basically, I think a huge proportion of people just dropped all their routines. You know, they just stopped getting up at the time they used to get up. But a lot of people, if you remember the very first lockdown, in a way acted as if it was Christmas holidays, you know, staying up late, watching kind of Netflix, having a drink midweek on school nights because there was no school night <laughs> sort of thing. And then, you know, there was pyjama build, you know, if you didn't have to do a Zoom, even if you did have to do a Zoom, you could put a top on and still have your PJs on in the bottom. Showers maybe weren't taken as, as you know, as frequently. And um, basically what that means is your brain had to, has to think about every single act that you are engaging in. What am I going to do next? What am I wearing? Am I okay with this? So actually, to be honest, the solution is great. The solution is in the problem. Just go back and reintroduce all of those routines and you will be surprised how much lighter your brain will feel and, and you know, how better you can function. Um, and I think, you know, if people kind of just understood that, I think it will also help people to transition back into work. You know, it won't be such a, a shock to the system. Obviously, I think some people have coped better than others because they did hold on to their routines. And I think another really important thing is 
you know, that loss of boundaries between work life and home life. And especially for people who were homeschooling. I mean, gosh, the stress of that. I mean, I don't have young children. I just cannot imagine what it was like. I think and I really feel for people. I really think I would have been, you know, I wouldn't have been at home. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I would have been ill somewhere in a hospital. But um, again, you know, that stress is 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 horrific. You know, even just having kids around under your feet all day and trying to work is tough, let alone trying to figure out how you're going to homeschool them. I suppose that's a very long-winded answer to say <laughs> that yes. And yes, people are experiencing depression and anxiety. In fact, um, the CDC, the Centre for Disease Control in the US, they do an annual, um, I think it's a home family survey or something like that. And one of the things they look at is depression and anxiety. And in ni- 2019, um, 11% of those surveyed said they experienced uh, depression and anxiety. And in 2021, that figure was 37%. So that's an absolute humongous Uh, leap. And I think as well, I think people are grieving. Um, You know, I know people, people are actually dealing with, you know, loss of loved ones in very strange circumstances. But there's also a grief you feel. I mean, we know for sure that you feel a grief if a marriage breaks up, you know, you feel a grief if you've lost your job. You know, we grieve for all sorts of things. And, um, you know, so a lot of us are going through those phases, you know, denial at first and um, anger, uh, depression, you know, bargaining, you know, almost uh, if I do this, don't make that happen, you know. And then ultimately at some point, I mean, they don't happen in a linear fashion. You can go back and forth and back and forth. But ultimately the, the sort of breathe and the way out is when you come to acceptance, acceptance of what has happened. And that's a space where you can look at what you can do or start to look at positives and make plans. And I think the people who have coped better with lockdown um, and myself included is just accepting. I have just accepted that this is how things are. And I've stopped looking at when is this going to be lifted? And in fact, we had a lift of we had a 5K uh, limit. You're only allowed to walk within 5K of your home. And that was lifted last Monday. But actually, I hadn't even I hadn't even noticed was my son said to me, it's great, isn't it? You can go such and such a place. And I said, oh, can I? Oh, that is great. But I wasn't monitoring it. Um, and I, I think that's a lot of the problem is people are just focusing on what they can't do um, instead Instead of going, okay, I have no control over that. Now, what can I do? And I mean, that is easy for me to say in a sense that, you know, I will say that that because I don't have children, etc. I think that's really powerful. And and what better a time for your book to have come out? Because, you know, who who would have known when you were writing it that everything that you were writing about was, was heightened in a sense? Um, so it's almost kind of pushed everything to the point where more and more people are experiencing those things that that you write about and that you write for. Yeah. So your your background, you didn't set out to be an expert in neuroscience. Um, <laughs> no. So can you give us a bit about your background? And, and I think, did you work for, was it Irish Life? <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. Yeah, I have a bit of a checkered history. <laughs> but I think that's good. I think we live too long now to have a single career. Um, I left school at 16 with my Leaving Cert, which is like your A-levels. Um, and I just went, I went to work in an office. You know, very few... 
very few girls that are now women, but very few girls of my age actually went to university. Um, and it tended to be the daughters of professionals, like the daughters of, you know, solicitors or doctors or that kind of thing. Um, but it kind of in a way wasn't on the radar. Um, and really the goal was to get a permanent pensionable job. Uh, you know, like most families, you know, if their son or daughter got a job in the bank, it was like... My son works in the bank, you know. Um, and so, yeah, my father actually worked in that. It was a life assurance company and my father worked there. And I was the youngest of five children and his ambition was for one of his kids to work there. And one one mad day I remember saying to my mum, because the others had applied and didn't get in, you used to have to sit an aptitude test, an exam or whatever and have certain grades in your, in your exams. And um, I said, oh, I think I could do that, you know. And it was really probably a daddy-pleasing moment, you know. <laughs> and then before I knew it, yeah, there I was um, working in a job that really was oh, it just was quite boring and mundane. I was really just working to earn a living, but it was a vibrant company. It had just exploded and there was about uh, 2,000 staff overall. And I think probably 1,800 of those were between the ages of 18 and 24. So it was like just a really nice place, you know, in terms of at that age, I suppose a bit like the Googles now, you know, those kind of companies, except we didn't have all the free beer and the, the free food. But uh, most of and us... the trampolines. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the away days and, and the, the free branded goods. But most of us, to be honest, I think, um, and I suppose I can't speak for everybody, there was definitely people who had career trajectories in mind, but most of us were working to pay for our holiday or to go to the pub and go out partying and buy new clothes. Like it was work to achieve something rather than work to satisfy yourself or your soul. Um, and then actually, I um, one good thing about it was the company, you got a preferential mortgage. So you were able to get a mortgage quite um, easily. And, and so I bought my first house when I was 24. Um, so like that was a, you know, a real bonus and benefit. And I had my kids uh, young. I had my kid, you know, I got married at that age and I had my first kid the, the next year and the next one a year and 10 months later. And and that really did, you know, having kids is that really life changing moment is does get you to start to step outside yourself and kind of think about, well, what am I doing and what do I want for my kids? And, and that really jumped out at me. I didn't want my kids to be doing what I was doing. You know, I wanted them to find something that they loved and something that they, um, yeah, could earn a living, you know, to find a way to earn a living doing it. And I kind of went, well, I knew as much that kids learn by example. And, you know, I wasn't giving example. And I suppose it's funny, I think back then, you know, I was probably... 27 and I thought like my life is over <laughs> you know it's kind of funny you think you're so old then so um, old. definitely <laughs> I know I definitely turning 30 was probably the worst age I felt turning 40 and 50 are so much easier yeah, you know yeah. um but uh yeah that just got me thinking and so um I had always loved I mean my passion was to act and and drama was my passion and I had trained since the age of 8 and I had done my drama exams like you do music exams remotely with the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London and I had always excelled at that and done very well so I I mean I always harbored a desire to be an actor but I didn't think ordinary people could be actors you know I mean I think people listening have to understand that going back then we didn't have internet. We didn't have mobile phones. You know, people who were in movies, they were just 
uh, you know, they were idolized. Do you know what I mean? They were just different creatures. And, and you couldn't for a minute think that you could possibly be one of those. But uh, yeah, I just decided I, I, I gave up my job. I qualified as a drama teacher. I opened a little drama school and tried to get work as an actor and did um, a lot of freebies on student films and that sort of thing, low budget films. And then I got a part in Ireland's soap opera, sort of the equivalent of EastEnders. And that was five nights a week. And um, I loved every minute of that. And it was meant to be like a six week gig and it turned into like 106 episodes and, you know, a few years work. What was your character? Um, my character was called Tess Halpin and she was a victim of uh, domestic violence. So it was just a really, really meaty, super role. Uh, it just, I mean, I loved it every minute of it. It was hard now because I'm very much an actor who 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 li- sort of lives the part, you know, so I would come home absolutely drained, you know, and I would be irritable at home because I'd been fighting all day, you know, and, and, and that would feel like I was fighting or crying. Did that start to make you think about because you were in, in a way internalizing what your character was going through or had been through, was that what sort of triggered the sense of, you know, what how our, our minds think and how our emotions work? And was that a sort of trigger towards feeling a way towards psychology? Yeah, to be honest, I think it's in a way it's it, it's the reverse. I ne- I never had any interest in uh, really doing theatre, although I trained as a theatre actress. My interest was in trying to understand why somebody would do something and to figure out that thought process and why we behave. So actually going way back to when I was a child, I was always interested in human behavior, in how we worked. So that's actually in a way what drove my acting, y- you know, was that you know, trying to kind of figure that out. And my dad, I mean, I one of my, you know, you know, the way you only have a few childhood memories from when you're very young was um, my dad was a, you know, a reader and he was very interested in, um, in fact, he always felt he would have loved to have been a doctor and, 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 and a, a neurologist or something like that. So he had that interest. So there was a few books in the house that he had. They were like, gosh, remember encyclopedias, <laughs> you know, you don't need those anymore. They were huge, but we didn't have encyclopedias but that my dad had a few of those big books and I remember one of my favorite things to do was when they had got up if it was a Saturday morning I would take one of these particular books that I loved and the sun came into their bedroom in the morning and I would go in and I would get into their empty bed and I would open that book and just turn the pages and it had things like um Mendel's you know genetics of you know the peas um uh, heritability the evolution of man you know so um, it was just all that, you know, and I just loved it. So I always had that sort of interest. So, yeah, ultimately then when um, my character, my part ended in a no going back sort of way, my husband eventually killed me. <laughs> so there was no going back. There was no coming back from that, no. There was no coming, unless I was going to do a Bobby Ewing in the shower um, from Dallas. Um but yeah, they actually had to put, you know, they had helplines on that night. And um, I mean, this is going back a good while. This is going back early, ni- late 90s, early tw- 2000s. So like it was really, um, you know, I- I'd say probably in that show, it was the first time that kind of topic was was covered. And and, um, and that's amazing, isn't it? Because that that was probably sort of quite a maybe controversial thing to be exploring at that time and and to be really sort of looking at what that was like for 
for women. Yeah, it it really was and actually gave me considerable insight because, um, you know, people do contact you after things like that. You know, they contact helplines. But um, I did a lot of, you know, it, there was discussions on the radio, you know, that I wasn't even on. Do you know that kind of way that was, you know, really discussing the issue? So, you know, it was good. It was kind of doing that and shining a light. And, and I actually remember being interviewed, um, you know, and a journalist revealing to me that they had been, you know, the victim of... And, and I, you'd be really surprised how many people, you know, kind of have been through those. So, yeah, I mean, that that kind of sort of, I suppose, that side of it, I, I suppose I was always interested in understanding and how can you fix, not not that people are broken, but how can you help people to, to, to be heal. more empowered or, mm-hmm. you know, to change how we get stuck in. And, and I firmly believe, and I still do, that if you understand how your brain works, you understand how you work and you can understand how your certain patterns of behavior you have and, and how that if you work at them, you can escape or change from, escape from whatever situation, but also from your own behaviors, your own repeated behaviors or your own inner dialogue. Um, I, I sort of, in a way, became unemployable after that for a while. It was such a high profile part and I thought that I would do um, an eye course. In parallel to that, my eldest son has quite a severe learning um, disability. It's under the umbrella of dyslexia, but he'd never had any problem reading. But um, he has real challenge with written written language and um, would really have to simplify his thoughts to get them down on paper. So I was really interested in trying to figure out what was going on in his brain, what what wasn't working right, because he didn't tick the boxes of regular dyslexia. And, you know, what I read about people like him was not very good. They tended to end up with serious mental health issues or in prison. And so that was a serious sort of driver for me to try and understand because the schools, what the schools do, you know, and, and I, you can kind of see the understanding of it, like the practice for treating kids for those, it's, it's like 20 years old. Do you know, they're not operating on cutting edge because they're not allowed to bring that stuff into the school because there hasn't been all the research, etc. And actually, to be honest, what they were trying to do with him in school was actually making things worse. You know, it, it really was. So I started trying to access academic papers myself and, and read information. And I found information about a thing called cerebellar developmental delay. And it was just, oh my God, this is it. This is what he has. This is him, you know. And uh, that's a whole, I, I actually did a podcast episode with him. He's the first, you know, it just seemed to make sense that the podcast was about thriving and surviving in life. And I went, you know what? I'd mentioned my son a couple of times in my podcast and I went, you know what? I should actually talk to him about it. It was a bit weird <laughs> um, because, yeah, and, and, and you know, my, my uh, long story short on that, like he went from being diagnosed at the age of nine. When I first went to the school, when he was about four or five, I said, there's something wrong here. I, I, you know, the, the teacher just looked down his nose at me and said, uh, Darren is average, Mr. Mrs. Brennan. We can't all have geniuses. And I said, no, but there's something wrong. I really know this is not right. So by the age of nine, then I took him to an educational psychologist and he was diagnosed with quite severe. So I, I don't know if people know, you know, you do these assessments and they assess various aspects of your cognition and... Um, Basically, the definition of a diagnosis is if you're performing in one level way below all your other levels. So it's not about it's not about your average intelligence. It's about having this disparity between. So abstract reasoning is one of the most complex, you know, cognitive functions that people have. And so he would have been up in the 85th percentile on that, like really high. In written language, he was in the second percentile. So like that's what I mean by, you know, 
sort of a, a serious thing. There was something going amiss. Anyway, yeah. So um, when he transitioned to what we call secondary school, basically the teacher said, look, he should make choices and do woodwork and metalwork and, and aim to leave school. Um, you know, at 14 or 15. And I said, this is absolute nonsense. This is ridiculous. He's a really, really clever individual. You know, you just had to have a conversation with him to see that. But his written work looked like that of a child and the content was that of a child. Essentially, basically, he never automated the handwriting. So if you automate behaviour <laughs> that I was talking about earlier, if you automate physical behaviour, so you learn how to write, that ultimately, when you're learning how to write, it's a really complex cognitive activity. The crinkly part of your brain is being used. But once you learn how to do it, that's automated and it's taken over actually by your cerebellum, which is the tennis ball at the back of your brain, the small brain. Um, and it's completely automatic and you don't have to think about it. So handwriting for him never automated. So not only when he was, was he trying to formulate his thoughts, he also had to formulate each letter as if he was only learning. So the only way his brain could cope with that was to simplify what he was to write down. And of course, then on top of that, that was utterly exhausting. You know, he would have to go to bed after school. Anyway, long story short, we worked with him. I worked with him a lot. And, you know, that put a strain on our relationship, if I'm honest. But, um, uh, you know, it really sort of saved him in a way. And he did very well in what would be the equivalent of your O-levels and went on and then decided, oh, I think I might like to go to university. And he did a degree in biochemistry and immunology. And then he did a second degree in medicine and he's now a doctor. So was all that sort of, a, I mean, very often we find that when people change course in their career, that it is very often triggered by something very personal. So you had that and then you were also getting sick yourself. I don't know if it was the same time or as a consequence, but was something called, I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah, so it's Sjogren's. Sjogren's. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was on and off. Um, but definitely the, the thing with Darren definitely triggered the interest in, oh, I like exploring this stuff. So that was like psychology. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that, the kind of, Health kind of was on and off. I mean, I was very bad actually back when I was about 32 when the kids just started school. Um, really strange stuff kind of going on. Um, what kind of symptoms? Uh, just really odd stuff. I got, um, you know, if I would cut my finger, I could wake up the next day and it'd be completely uh, septic and, and you know, infected. Um, I got boils. This is very personal, but it really what I mean by really weird, I got boils all across my perineum. I couldn't walk. Uh, it was absolutely agony. I uh, woke up one morning and my ear had swollen. <laughs> I had just really, really strange, mad stuff. Felt fatigued, tired, unwell. So was that autoimmune? Ultimately, I have a diagnosis of autoimmune. Um, I, I didn't get the diagnosis at that point in time. Um, I did go to the doctor. He didn't even know where to send me. I had so many different symptoms because I had bowel symptoms as well. And um, he did do autoimmune bloods and they were kind of borderline for lupus at that time. And, um, you know, I, I, I kind of... Again, I did sort of a little bit of reading about it and I kind of got some of my life factors under control, you know, particularly managing stress. Um, and that's critical to our health, you know, to any sort of health. Um, you know, stress is going to impact on your mental, physical and your brain health, you know, really in a detrimental way. Um, and things kind of improved for a bit. Um, but after I left the show and I decided I'd do a night course, which accidentally then became, you know, I ended up applying for a full-time degree and loved it. And sort of didn't look back. I then got a scholarship to do my PhD. So at this point, I'm 42 when I go to university for the first time. I'm the first person in my family ever to go to university. Um, 
And then um, I did my PhD, actually, I got a scholarship and my son who has dyslexia, he got into the same university. So he was doing his first undergrad degree when I was doing my PhD, which was a really kind of nice Brilliant. moment. Um, and the PhD was particularly stressful um, for a lot of reasons. I suppose, I, I'm, you know, I'm a real perfectionist and I would work very hard and doing a PhD is lonely. It's isolating. You know, you're on your own. There are ones now where you can do it and you do courses and you have classmates. Mine was on my own. But on top of that, I was being asked to do the work of another individual. Um, you know, I was a P, I had a, a government scholarship. And then um, where I was doing my PhD, they had got a grant to do another project. And so I often happened, anyone listening who's done a PhD, they were able to get a top up. So you were able to to pay me some money from that grant. And my PhD was spoke to that grant. Do you know what I mean? So I would be producing work. But they also, there was a position for a postdoctoral researcher and um, who was meant to start at the same time as me. And um, he was in Australia, not going to be starting for another 10 months or so. And so I was given his work to do as well as my own PhD. And, uh, and I'm only learning how to do this stuff. And I, I, I suppose I was very naive. I didn't really realise that I should have just said no. Um, I think I've always been a people pleaser. Um, I think as an older woman, I felt that if I said no, probably the younger women would have, you know, done it and had no problem doing it. And my kids were still sort of in their teens at this stage, you know, so you're dealing with all that. Um, in hindsight, what I've realised is, and having spoken about it, is that the younger women would have said no, feck off. <laughs> I'm doing my PhD and that's it. So actually, you know, so I ended up getting, I really did end up getting very ill to the point that, I mean, I kept working um, I just, but I stopped doing everything else. I stopped walking my dogs and don't worry, the dogs got walked. My husband did it, but we used to go for, we'd go for, our dogs were very young then, the particular dogs we had, and we'd walk maybe five or six miles every morning. Uh, I stopped doing that because I couldn't, the pains in my legs, my arms, you know, headaches. Um, basically, the only way I can describe the pain is um, if you've ever gone to the gym and being over enthusiastic and you've overdone it and actually really, I mean, I know you kind of break down muscle to build it up, but you know where you've gone, gone too far and you really tear muscle and you actually can't walk the next day. It's agony. Well, that's the way I was every day in pretty much every muscle in my body. It was just, and, and what I did was I narrowed my life, which is not a good thing to do. I stopped instead of actually pulling back in my work and saying, this is ridiculous because I was what I was doing was I was working from the day in the daytime. I was still working when I got home in the evening. I would go to bed maybe 10 or 11 and then I would wake at 3 a.m. or whatever and work from 3 a.m. to 6, maybe grab another hour and then start the day again. This was neuroscience that you were doing? This, the yes. PhD yeah, was, yeah. Hmm. This was my PhD. My PhD was has this mad title. Uh, um, so I did electrophysiology, which, you know, I'm not really that sort of person. And I, you know, in that techie side of things, but I liked the information that you got from it. So as you're getting ill and you're learning all of this stuff, are you beginning to put two and two together? And not really on that, on that part. I mean, I knew enough to know that stress, you know, impacts. Um, my PhD was about how the cha brain changes with age. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't necessarily related to that. But my psychology degree would have taught me enough to know, you know, 
certain things about how um, how your body functions. And it did sort of serve me well in terms of when I ultimately got diagnosed to understand how the medication that I was prescribed was going to, to work. So ultimately, I mean, I, I had this whole series and I'm sure people out there with autoimmune diseases will, um, will uh, hear this. I j- kept going to my GP. And she just kept doing ordinary bloods and kept saying, you're fine, there's nothing wrong. And I was going home going, I'm not. I mean, I couldn't even keep my eyes open, you know, um, and I would cough a lot at night time. And I, I remember going to that GP one of the last times I went to her and and um, the bloods came back again. And she said, Sabina, you are perfectly healthy. I wish all of my patients were as healthy as you were. Now go away and enjoy your life. And I went home and I remember just crying my eyes out because I thought I was going insane. Why would I be going to a doctor if I didn't feel dreadfully unwell? I wasn't a malingerer, you know, I had literally stopped seeing friends. I'd stopped doing all the fun stuff. I was insisting on just working and I worked no matter how unwell I was. And then it just got so bad when I was in the university um, that I went to the university doctor and I told her that whatever 10 years previously I'd had borderline lupus. And that was something I probably took my stuck my head in the sand down because I didn't want to be diagnosed with that. So she sent me off for a full, you know, full array of bloods and some odd things came back and she sent me to a rheumatologist. And ultimately I was diagnosed, but she knew what I had. This was another thing. Um, she knew what I had by my symptoms. She asked me, she she knew her stuff in that things that I hadn't put together, she knew because she would say I hadn't even mentioned as a symptom that I wake up coughing at night and that sometimes I would wake up going, you know, that my the back of my throat was stuck, you know, together. It was just so dry. Um, and basically she said, do you cough a lot at night? How do you, do you bring water up to bed? How much would you drink in the nighttime? And I said, oh, I have to. I couldn't get through the night. You know, I'd be so dry. And then the tired nurse turns out to be dryness in my eyes. So I should explain that Sjogren's is an autoimmune disease that kills the moisture producing glands in your body. So um, that was the dry mouth on the saliva and causing the cough and the eyes, like it was the gritty eyes, which just makes you feel exhausted anyway. And um, but while she knew what I had, she wouldn't give me a definitive diagnosis because my bloods indicated an autoimmune disease, but were not specific for Sjogren's. And she said, I needed to have a lip biopsy. So that what they do is they take a uh, about an inch or two from inside of your lower lip and have a look to see whether your saliva glands are healthy or if they've start, you know, if they've been attacked and starting to die off. So I looked up about it and all there was was horror stories online about how people were left with um, nerve damage and that, you know, it was not not essential. And in the US, they had banned it as, you know, and basically what they said was, you know, you must diagnose Sjogren's on the basis of symptoms you know, not to do this invasive biopsy. I mean, you're not looking for, um, you're not, it's not like a biopsy for cancer. You're not looking for malignancy or, or, or benign. You're just looking to see the damage. And about, I let about a year pass and my symptoms just got so worse, so bad that I, you know, I remember just saying, I can't live like this. I just want to die. I, I, I can't, you know. Um, so I decided I'd go in and get that uh, biopsy and that wound ended up getting infected and all the rest and I still have no feeling actually between there and there I have no feeling so occasionally if you're out I said if I was out with a friend <laughs> when we could go out and she laughed at me one time because I was um, 
started to dribble. And she says, oh, you've only had one sip of wine and you're dribbling. And I, I made her feel so bad. I says, I have no feeling in that part of my lip. I'll have you know. <laughs> so sometimes it's a bit like the dentist, you know. Um, but I have to say, I am really, really mild now. You know, I, I, you know, I get symptoms, I get flares, but and that really is around uh, really taking control of your life and the factors that impact and influence those things. And that really is managing stress. Sleep is, I can't tell you how critical sleep is. And I kind of discovered on my journey when I was given the first medications that um, I had never been sleeping deeply enough. I did ultimately go to, after the the whole lip situation, (laughs) I ended up going to another uh, rheumatologist. And so he diagnosed uh, fibromyalgia together with the Sjogren's. Uh, And then subsequently, a neurologist diagnosed migraine and then diverticular disease. So for me, really what it was, was um, a combination of multiple things that made it very difficult. Do you know what I mean? Rather than sort of one thing in isolation. Yeah. And so, you know, you're under huge stress from from work, but also stress from being ill and, and being in pain. So it's almost like a sort of cumulative effect, isn't it, across everything? One of the things that I'm really interested in that, you know, you're, you focus on on the brain health and all the things that you talk about in your book are really about the whole body. And, and last week or a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed somebody um, and, and she was talking about vaginal health, but that as a as a result, you know, that you have to look at the whole body. And it's quite interesting because we we do tend to separate physical health from neck down, mental health from neck up. But actually, all the things that, that um, people like you talk about in terms of either prevention or, or helping with symptoms is about looking at the whole body and the interaction between the whole body. So I see it, to be honest, I would see it if you have a hierarchy, I would see it as brain health being the ultimate because the brain controls everything, even how healthy your vagina is, you know, because, you know, that's related to hormones and hormones. Um, you have, you know, if even if you just take sex hormones like estrogen, you have, you know, an abundance of those in your brain. So if there is a change in those, that's going to change so many things, including your behavior and including your cognitive function. So everything stems from your brain. So that's why I focus on brain health. Um, I think, um, uh, you know, the, the, as you say, the, 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 division is, uh, the division is artificial. But I do think it's rather funny. It's good. It's positive that we know so much about heart health, for example. But I would see the heart as a pump that services the brain and the rest of your body, you know. And it's a, you know, a relatively simple organ in that, you know, it's it's pumping stuff around, but stuff that's vital to your brain. And that's why physical exercise and a healthy cardiovascular system are vital to your brain. So basically, if you if you take that brain perspective and and do the things that are good for your brain, your mental health will follow and so will your physical health. But on top of that, you will be more empowered, particularly in terms of your mental health, because you understand how your how you work, how the different parts of your brain influence and can lead you to 
you know, feelings of anxiety or feelings of overwhelm or depression. And in understanding that, I think that's why I really concretize it. I don't use the, I, I don't talk about the mind. I don't talk about the mind at all. I sort of see that as an unnecessary middleman, really, in a way. And by that, I mean is there's a term used in science and I only learned it like at about 44, you know, because I had to look it up because I read it, you know, but it's called reification. And I I think it's it's really relevant I don't know of any simpler term for it, but basically what it means is you turn a process into a thing. So we talk about the mind as if it is something, you know, a a concrete thing. Your brain is something. The mind really, when we talk about the mind, we are talking about the processes carried out by the brain. And I actually think that's just much more empowering because if you can't see or touch or feel or even define the mind, that's disempowering. You know, mind over matter. Oh, well, sometimes you can do that. Whereas if I just say, actually, you know, that's an electrical signal running from there to there. And actually what's happened is we'll say your amygdala has become hyperactive because you've been chronically stressed and it is overriding your thinking brain. So you're going to have to actually work that little bit harder. It's not all about, yes, you will be, oh, I'm feeling anxious, but you're feeling anxious because your amygdala is overreacting. And and if you then know how to calm your amygdala down, you know, and understand that this is actually physiological response, if you keep saying certain things in your thinking, it will actually switch off that stress response, lower the cortisol levels, even as something simple. You don't even have to use the power of thinking. If you laugh, If you laugh, if you do something that's fun, that lowers your cortisol levels and that will then, because that's where the feelings of anxiety are coming from. So I just feel that that's why I'm kind of passionate about getting people to understand their brain. It's so empowering. And I think that's what's so brilliant about your book is because it makes it, um, it makes it something that every one of us can do. And in a way, you've got these sort of pillars of, so you've talked about sleep as being so important and exercise being so important, smiling and laughing, diet, presumably not diet in the sense of dieting, dieting but but in terms of... Dieting yeah. to lose weight. It's it's nourishment. It's nourishing, nourishing your brain. So yeah, I suppose the four pillars really in the book are the pillars underlying brain health. And there's tons of, um, you know, there's a large body of research into what we know promotes a healthy brain. Um, And this particular book is about brain fog. But uh, if you have a healthy brain, you can actually build resilience and encourage a process called neuroplasticity in your brain, which um, when it comes to your brain, ladies... (laughs) <laughs> bigger is better. Uh, you you know, you want a bigger, denser brain um, because even if it comes to diseases in later life like dementia, it's not so much about how much pathology, how much disease you have in your brain, but how much healthy brain you have. So we don't know how to cure a disease like Alzheimer's disease. The plaques are there and they grow. But what we do know is if you live a brain healthy lifestyle, if you have a nice, you know, big, healthy brain, and I'll talk about how you can get one, um, you have more healthy brain to cope with and compensate for the damage being caused by that pathology. So Um, essentially what we can do is change the trajectory of the disease. So we distinguish between Alzheimer's disease, which is the pathology in your brain, and Alzheimer's dementia, which is the symptoms of that pathology, the memory loss, the confusion, etc. Now, some people can have the disease in their brain, but not the symptoms. 
And basically, the difference between those people is the lifestyle factors. They have a resilient brain that's been built up through healthy lifestyle. Now, it's not a get out of jail free card. Ultimately, over time, you will get more and more pathology in your brain and you reach a critical point where, you know, the symptoms will manifest because your healthy brain can no longer cope with this, become overwhelmed. But you've had more healthy years in possession of your full faculties. And I think that's kind of a very empowering thing. And, and in a way, that's what my first book was all about, was 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 doing that. Um, and really, um, you know, there's, there's no rocket science. It is neuroscience, but, you know, in terms of what it is to do. So sleep is critical for several reasons. Um, you know, when you go to sleep at night, you know, information is sorted and, and consolidated in memories and clears up resources so that you can take in new information the next day. But also your brain can't, your lymphatic system cleans out your body during the day. The waste produced by metabolic waste. But your brain can't be you and do the cleaning. Um, it can do a little bit of cleaning, um, but um, it can't. It's a bit like the bin lorries going around at night time. It needs you to be asleep and then it can go around and do a really deep clean. So sleep helps it and allows it to do the cleaning. Detoxify the brain. If you don't have sleep, those, you know, the metabolic waste is a high energy organ. So that will build up. That's why you feel groggy in the morning. You know, if you wake up and you feel really groggy, well, you know, the the the, the chemicals haven't really been cleared from your brain. But also more worryingly, um, one of the toxins is beta amyloid, which is um, the key hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. And we know that there's um, there's a really close relationship between poor sleep and Alzheimer's disease. Now, don't know yet whether it's kind of cause and effect, but, you know, get your sleep. It's so critical. Um, the second pillar really is to manage stress. Um, so stress is not bad for you. Stress is, you know, healthy stress, healthy amounts of stress are critical to a healthy brain. Um, that's enjoyable stress. Um, and I think a lot of people on lockdown are missing that kind of stress. It comes from things like playing sport or going out on dates or, you know, giving presentations and talks. It's that thing where you're just at that edge of, oh, why did I say I would do this? And then afterwards, you're so exhilarated and you get the reward. And that's critical to manage that healthy stress because it's important to keep challenging yourself and doing those things because you will um, promote neuroplasticity when you do that. But stress is problematic when it becomes chronic and poorly managed, as most of us are having at the moment. And also if you have too little stress, which some people are having at the moment as well, because they're sitting staring at four walls and, you know, they've no job or they've become unemployed. So they're both really, really bad for you. So it really is about finding your own stress sweet spot where you have just enough in your life. Um, and the book gives a lot of tips of that. And that's where the smiling and laughter come in. You know, I have a 30 day plan and I just figured having lived through brain fog myself. And yes, you know, with my migraine, which I have, brain fog is associated, associated with fibromyalgia, it's associated with Sjogren's and, and the menopause. I've been there, done that with all of them. So I've had serious brain fog. Um, and I kind of felt with the book, well, how do I help people improve when they're already feeling really challenged? So it really is a 30 days of rituals to help you reset your brain. They're really, really quite gentle. The stress week Literally, what all you have to do is, uh, I think I say a half an hour of day, a day of having fun and, you know, smiling several times a day. I mean, how how tough is that? But we've forgotten to do that, particularly during lockdown. Um, and so it really is just about introducing little routines like that into your life. I I have a, a puppy. Um, she, well, she's <gasps> nearly two, nearly three. And I've never had a dog before. And, and I'm so thankful during during lockdown because she just makes me laugh the whole time. 
And and who'd have thought that you know something as you know simple as that um, can lift your day? I would advocate that everybody have. I have four rescue dogs, you know, and uh, yeah, work comes with it. But that gets you out of bed in the morning. You know, you cannot walk your dogs. Do you? You know, um, and the joy that I get and the unconditional love, and particularly when we can't hug people. You know, I mean, my dogs kiss me all over, and they, you know, I walk in the house. I could be gone for a half an hour, and like it's just such a joyous feeling. They're just so they're yeah. never not happy to see yeah. you. So I mean, all of that sort of promotes promotes good health, doesn't it? And what about I'm really sort of interested about hydration and and how you know, I read that, you know, most of us are chronically dehydrated. Yeah, yeah, that's really bad. Your brain is a thirsty organ. I have my bottle of water here beside me. Um, it is a really thirsty organ and it, it won't function well um, unless you, you you know, you give it um, the water. And most of us don't drink enough water. Um, and I have, a, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but I actually have a little formula in the book that allows you kind of accurately, because I mean, I know we say people say something like X number of litres a day, but we're all different sizes and, and engage in different activities. So I think there's a little formula in the book where you can figure out how much you should be drinking. And of course, if you're drinking alcohol, you really need to be drinking more water. And in fact, actually, none of us should be drinking alcohol at all. It is detrimental to your brain function and your cognitive function. Um, but we're all doing what we can to cope with lockdown. So I just I just <laughs> put the information out there so that people know and can make that decision. Um, but I think all of us know that when we don't drink, we, we feel better, um, both physically and mentally. Um, but um, hydration, yeah, is it, it, it's absolutely critical. And in fact, um, um, you know, one problem with later life is that um, a lot of people don't realise that as we get older, um, uh, you know, we lose the capacity to mount a temperature in the same way uh, uh, that we used to. However, a lot of people aren't aware of that. And a lot of us will have grown up with, have I got a temperature as the impetus or, or the decision maker about whether you should go see a doctor or not? So a lot of people, older people, will get kidney infections and they can be prone to kidney infections. Um, but they don't may not necessarily get a temperature with them and they could have quite a severe kidney infection. And uh, rather than go to the doctor about it, um, uh, because they're peeing more frequently uh, and it's stopping them leaving the house, they go, oh, I'm not going to drink water. And so they have a kidney infection will dehydrate you and then not drinking water. I mean, you know that if you've ever had a UTI or any sort of infection, the doctor will say, drink plenty of water, you've got to flush this out to your system. So actually what happens then is the cytokines um, go into the brain and you will end up with delirium. Um, and I mean, my own mother had that. That's exactly what happened to my mother. Um, and I wasn't even aware of it sort of back at that time. And you get a delirium. And if you have any underlying, as an older person at that point, if you have any underlying mild cognitive impairment, getting a delirium from an infection will accelerate it. And often people, you can recover from delirium but um, you you may find that there's a, an impact on your cognitive function or you may actually have accelerated through to dementia. So, yeah, the hydration is really critical. So, too, is nutrition. That's the, you know, the, the, the fourth pillar. So, I mean, there's so much that we can do ourselves and you can read your book to, to find out more about all of the different things that we can do. And you've done it in a very simple way that works through a plan. So it's, you know, it's very clear and it's very straightforward and it's, you know, it's not disruptive. And I don't use words like reification. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and 
and it's not disruptive. It is something that you can just build in these these habits bit by bit. And you do say, you know, don't try and do it all at once. Do do it bit by bit. And they're just little rituals. Just it's it is it is about kind of create and 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 almost considering it you know, me time, this is, and you're no good to anybody else unless you, like, it's not, self-care is not selfish. Uh, it's sensible. Um, and it's important to do that first, you know, care for yourself first and then care for others. It, it, it will be better for the other people too, because um, you won't have that irritability or that that um, sense that, you know, they're taking something from you. If you've looked after yourself first, then you're in that position to give. So you've been on on quite a journey to to in your own health in helping your son to to becoming an expert in this field and and you know you must have seen many people who have struggled a long time to try and work out what's wrong and how they can um help themselves and and to get better or at least minimize the symptoms that that they have. So the symbol of our of the podcast is Choose courage. You know, at every fork of the road, you have a ch- you have an opportunity to choose courage. So, I wonder how you define courage. That's the question that 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 really made me think. Um, you know, I wouldn't see myself as courageous. That's that's kind of funny. You know how how, how we think of ourselves. Um, I suppose I see it as just getting up again every time you fall um, or every time something knocks you down. Um, I think it's important to uh, look at the positives. Um, I I do honestly think that acceptance um, of what you can't change is critical. That doesn't mean you you stay, you know, that you can that you can't change. Do you know what I mean? So acceptance of the things that you are unable to change, and then looking to what you can change so that you can work towards what you want. I mean, I it took me a long time to learn that. You know, I mean, I spent a long time, you know, banging down doors that were slammed in my face. And really what I realize now is when, a you know, a door closes, you know, uh, it's an opportunity to turn around and see what ones behind you have been open that you didn't notice. And I've actually genuinely found that when you find those, go through those doors, actually what you find is better than what you've been really, really, you know, working hard to get. That's been my experience anyway. That is so, so true in my experience too. Absolutely. 100%. Well, thank you so much, Sabina, for explaining how we can not only prevent brain disease and dysfunction, but also learn to alleviate symptoms with simple strategies and lifestyle changes. It's been brilliant. It's so helpful. I'm very, very focused on looking after my brain now. As, as much as and if not more than my <laughs> teeth. <laughs> in fact, my whole body. But I think, you know, no, understanding that and understanding the importance of your brain as being the sort of the engine room for everything else. It is. But your dental health is super important as well because you need your teeth to eat, to speak and smile. And they're all yeah. important for yeah. brain health. <laughs> so thank you, Sabina. See you soon. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, Dr. Sabina, for showing us that when we look after our brains, we can function with clearer heads and a happier outlook for the future. You can find out more about Dr. Sabina's work on www.superbrain.ie. Follow her on Instagram at Sabrina Brennan and listen to her brilliant podcast, Superbrain. Thanks to Silk Studios for producing and sourcing the guests for the show. And thanks to you all for listening. Take care, choose courage and see you next week.